today's scripture reading comes from John 1, 19 through 34 of the ESV. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Mercy Hill Church. Grab a Bible if you don't have one. Keep it open to John 1, 19 through 34. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one on the pew in front of you. And um, I know that there are just a few. We've got some more um, that have been shipped that are on the way. We want you to take that Bible with you if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures. And our hope this year as a church is that we would abide in the Scriptures And then that we would abound in the work that Jesus has for us. And the way that we are doing that is we're studying the life of Jesus in the Gospel of John uh, for almost all of 2020. And we're we're taking it a pretty good clip. And so this morning we're looking at verses uh, 19 through 34 and we're doing this. Why is it so important that we abide in the Scriptures and abide in Jesus? Well, last week as we started the Gospel of John, we said what you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. What you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. And so abiding with Jesus is the most important time that we spend. And today, um, we're going to look at why this really matters. Why this really matters. What you think about Jesus is the most important thing about you. I said that last week. Here's what that means. Just take a little pressure off. Because for some of y'all, um, you're stressed and anxious about a lot of different things. You're trying to figure out stuff with jobs, make big career decisions, 
figure out what houses to buy. Uh, some of y'all are trying to figure out who to marry. Or maybe you just like, that'd be a great problem, I'm just looking for a date. Uh, some of y'all, if you're really honest, are trying to figure out, if you're a teenager, you're stressed out about what high school you're going to go to and if you're going to get in. Or maybe what, what you're going to major in in college. But let's get really serious and down to business. Who are you going to take to prom? Right? And here's the deal. You can make all the wrong decisions about all of those things. And if you make the right decision about Jesus, you can have hope and you can have life. And the flip, flip side of that coin is true as well. You can make in the world's eyes what's the right decision about all of those things and have a great home and a great wife and a great life. And if you miss out on Jesus, then you've missed it all. And John shows us that. Today we're looking at what I have entitled uh, Jesus' Best Supporting Actor. Jesus' Best Supporting Actor. And his name is John the Baptist. If you guys are okay with it, I'm just going to call him JB. Uh, John the Baptist. Uh, if you want to know JB, uh, then you remember the TV show uh, with Bear Grylls? Uh, what was it called? Man vs. Wild. Man versus Wild. Well, you take Man versus Wild and you kind of link it up with this old show that came out back around 2000. It was called What Not to Wear. And in What Not to Wear, John the Baptist would have been an incredible candidate for both of these shows, like a, a mix. So What Not to Wear, they would secretly film someone who just dressed terribly. And they would secretly film them and then they would bring them in to this 360 mirror. And they would get them to agree that if they trashed their entire wardrobe, they would give them $5,000 and a makeover, but they had to like listen to the critique of the 360 mirror. And it was this whole show. You can go back and watch it if you had not seen it. John the Baptist would have been incredible on that show. He was like the worst of what not to wear mixed with... Actually, he wouldn't have been a very good candidate for... Uh, for the Bear Grylls show, Man vs. Wild. Because he probably was more wild than Bear Grylls is. Just throwing down grasshoppers. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So let's get in the scriptures. The big idea for today is this. We're looking at John the Baptist. The big idea is this. Making Jesus famous among those who don't know him will be the greatest achievement of your life. We need to stop and think about that. Making Jesus famous famous among those who don't know him will be the greatest achievement of your life. Greater than anything you achieve in your job. Greater than any degree or award your kids could win. Greater than winning the lottery or any dream or fantasy that you could come up with. Because Jesus is eternal and all the things that we would try to create are not. And John the Baptist shows us better than anyone how to humbly make Jesus famous among people who don't know him. In a very unique way, John the Baptist shows us that. So let's, let's jump in, beginning in verse 19, and follow along as I read verses uh, 19 through 22. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? 
We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? There's three characteristics of humble Christ followers. And we see them in John's life. And I want to point them out thus today. And there are ways in which we can make Jesus famous. Three characteristics of humble Christ followers. The first is this. Humble people are second. Humble people, they're not first. They're second. Look at John. John the Baptist was a weird dude. Okay? He's one of the weirdest dudes in all of Scripture. He was Jesus' hype man. Every, every superstar's got a good hype man, right? Right? John Morant, anybody follow the Grizzlies? Who's the hype man? Jaron Jackson Jr. Yeah, that's why we love watching the Grizzlies, right? Every superstar has a hype man. JB was Jesus' hype man. A little background on John the Baptist for you. He was born miraculously to Zechariah and Elizabeth when they were at a very old age. Zechariah was a Levite, so he served, he was ministering in the temple, and this angel shows up to Zechariah. We read about it in the early part of the Gospels. Angel shows up and says, Zechariah, surprise, you're going to be a dad. And Zechariah says, no way. I don't believe that, that's crazy. And the angel says, you don't believe that? Well, why don't you try being mute for the next nine months? You don't believe it? Then you're not going to talk about it. But you're going to see. It's going to happen. And what do you think happens? Sure enough, Elizabeth gives birth to John the Baptist. And we, we find out that John was actually filled with the Holy Spirit even when he was in his mother's womb. There's something weird going on here, guys, about John the Baptist. Look back at Luke 1 and uh, see with me what they say about John. Luke 1, verses 14 through 17. I don't have all these scriptures um, on the screen for you, I want you to open your Bibles and I want to hear the paper turning. Because there's, some, there's something about getting off your phone and getting in a paper Bible that just enables you to concentrate in a way that you know Twitter and all the other social media apps will just distract and pull you in. And so, get a paper Bible. Use a paper Bible. Luke uh, chapter 1, look at verses 14 through 17. And you will have joy... And gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. This is speaking of John the Baptist. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's all about... John the Baptist. So he took this Nazarite vow, and he's not supposed to drink wine, so the guy can't eat grapes. My goodness, he's got, he can't eat jelly on his toast, like he can't cut his hair. I mean, he's a weird dude. More than likely, you know, he's got long hair. I'm assuming he's probably got a long beard. And then it goes on, and we find out, if you do a little research on, on John the Baptist, so if, if you're getting a picture of who this guy is, think Duck Dynasty, okay? That's a great place to start. So JV's Duck Dynasty, but then we find out that he is clothed in camel hair with a leather belt. So some people have said, a camel, you take a camel's fur, you don't have to sew anything. You just find a couple of arms, you throw that thing on, you strap a belt around you, there's no tailor needed. And that's the kind of guy John the Baptist was. He was all about efficiency. I mean, he didn't even take time to go into town to buy groceries, he was like, he was just like Bear Grylls. I got everything I need right here. Grasshoppers, locusts, and honey. That's what he ate. Weird dude. 
I mean, this is Jesus hype man. He, his whole purpose in life is to point people to Jesus. And he is a weird dude. I just want you to hear the kind of people that Jesus can use. Because John had two things going for him. He was weird and he was humble. And honestly, most of you got one of those going. And you don't have the other. And I'll let you figure out what that is on your own. <clears throat> but John, I mean, to set the scene a little more, that's the background of John. But the scene, we don't understand truly what the nation of Israel is going through. I mean, they are in need of a Savior. They are in need of a conqueror. They have been almost 500 years since they've experienced freedom. So think about that for a minute. The United States, we, we're coming up. We're what? Six years away from our 250th anniversary. I'm not going to try to name what that, that, the term they've given to that. But 250 years that we will have lived in freedom as a nation. Twice that amount of time, these people have been under the tyranny of others. And not only that, but... In the political world, they're distressed. The, the Israelites have suffered under Roman tyranny. But then in the religious world, they've got Caiaphas. He's a joke. He's a puppet. He just serves the Romans. There's instability everywhere, politically, religiously. And there's, listen to this. There's no word from God for 400 years. Malachi was it. And Malachi, I don't know when the last time you read Malachi was. Probably been a minute. But uh, Malachi is kind of a rough book. It, it's not like, hey, we're going to write the book of Malachi because everybody's doing great. And we're just going to encourage them. No. It's like nobody tithes anymore. Uh, no one's salt and light anymore. You've all given up on following God. It's a call the spiritual awakening. And ever since the book of Malachi, 400 years of silence from God. Imagine that. That's the scene that we find. And in that, in, in the middle of this political and religious turmoil, John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's been living in the desert most of his life. Weird dude. And he comes on the scene and he begins declaring in Matthew 3, chapter 2, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Kingdom of heaven is near. And then in verses 5 and 6 of Matthew chapter 3, it says, People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And so you've got this weird dude that is calling people, and he's preparing the way for Jesus. He's outside Jerusalem in the wilderness, and Jewish people are so hungry, and they are so desperate for freedom and hope and life and a word from God that they go out into the wilderness to find Him. I mean, this is spiritual awakening at its best. Because John's not trending on Twitter. Like, John doesn't have big signs and billboards. He's a dude wearing camel's hair, eating locusts and honey. He's a weirdo who's unkept and people are going to him, it's, it's nothing but the Spirit of God at work. Think about it. He, if you read the Scriptures, he is literally saying, he's looking at people, he's got tax collectors who are showing up, he's got soldiers who are showing up, and they're repenting. And he's, he's, 
He's saying, hey, you know how you should live? You, you should only take as a tax collector what you should take as a soldier. You shouldn't live uh, the way that you've been living. Evil people are showing up. And you know why they're showing up? They're showing up because John's calling them a brood of vipers. And they're like, that's me. I'm a brood of vipers. What do I do? That's the Spirit of God at work. It's spiritual awakening. Mark 1.5 says, And all the country of Judea, and all Jerusalem were going out to him. Now, think about that for a minute. you got this religious thing that's taking place in the middle of nowhere. Well, how do you think the church responds to that? What do you think the church does? What happens when you start shaking things up in the church? We've never done it like that before. Right? Man, who's this guy? And they start looking into this. Man, we may need to make some rules or legislate some kind of morality against this, right? And so what do they do? What do the religious leaders do? They do what every good church does. They form a committee. And they say, hey, temple police, you guys need to go check on this guy, John. And so the committee goes and... Uh, and it says it's Jews from Jerusalem. Now, whenever you see that, that word, we're going to see Jews uh, almost 70 times throughout this book. Typically, that's talking about Jewish leadership. So, in this case, it's probably the Sanhedrin, um, who were the religious ruling council. They were made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. We're not going to get into all of that. You can do a little research. They were different parties, but they had come together because they were so desperate. Didn't even believe the same things about eternal life. Always remember the Sadducees. They were sad, you see, because they didn't believe that there was eternal life. Pharisees were kind of on the other side of that, but they tried to legislate morality. And so we got these Jews in the Jewish ruling council, and they're sending someone to look into John. Jared mentioned it earlier in his prayer. It's funny. We hadn't talked about that, but he talked about how we have this tendency to be Pharisees. Whenever you see the, the word the Jews... You know, when we read the book of John, we have this tendency to kind of go, dun, dun, dun. Like, oh, the Jews, those bad people. You know, or we kind of hear the Jaws music kind of behind us. Like, here they come. But we need to be reminded. There's a warning. We're the Jews, if we're not careful. There's a real tendency of the human heart to lean either toward license or legalism. And we must guard against thinking that we're better because we aren't any better. We're forgiven. And we don't have all the answers. We simply know the one who does. And that's very different. And so these temple police, they show up and they question John. They say, John, what kind of credentials do you got? And John's first response is, he says, hey, I'm going to answer your question in this way. I'll tell you who I'm not. I'm not the Christ. And they're like, oh my gosh. They're, they're, John's already frustrating, right? And uh, th there's so many revolutionaries at this day and time. Honestly, they were probably surprised. I mean, there were as many guys walking around claiming to be Messiah in Jerusalem in this day and time as there are kids walking around in Memphis claiming to be the next NBA superstar. Like, sure you are. Yeah, that's kind of what it's like in Jerusalem. Yeah, sure you're the Messiah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, we can look at history and see there's all these different men. We can even look in the Bible. And, and there's times where the Sanhedrin would come back and say, remember so-and-so who claimed to be the Messiah? So we see all these men that are claiming to be the Messiah. And John shows up and says, I'll tell you who I'm not. I'm not the Messiah. They go on and they say, well, are you Elijah? 
See, Elijah never died. He was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, in a chariot of fire. And so there was a prophecy in, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, that predicted that Elijah would return before the Messiah. And so they say, mate, maybe this is, this is Elijah, like reincarnated. He's come back. And we see the humility of John. He claims that he is not the literal Elijah. Jesus actually would later declare him to be the prophet who was predicted to come in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of his people back to God. The angel that we just read about earlier predicted his birth and he used the same language to say that he would come in the spirit of Elijah. John, listen to this, John has a lower view of his role and significance than even the way Jesus viewed him. Isn't that incredible? John said, I'm nothing to look at. They said, hey, are you the prophet? And there was an end-time figure who was predicted throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And at this point, they're just kind of grasping for straws. They're like, we've got to figure out who this guy is. Who are you? If you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, are you the prophet? And in verse 22, they become really frustrated. They came looking for answers. They're getting nowhere. And here's the problem. The Jewish leaders were part of a religious structure that prided itself in understanding the law prided itself in understanding the law and earning God's approval through obedience and sacrifice. And John is coming to declare a new way. Not only do we see that uh, John was humble and that he was second, but we also see that humble people are servants. Look at verse 23. Humble people are servants. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me. The strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. John's referencing a scripture from Isaiah 40. John is referencing himself as the herald of a new exodus. God had brought his people out of the desert into the promised land. He brought the Israelites out of Babylonian captivity, which is where they were in Isaiah in chapter 40, as Isaiah is writing. He's brought them out of Babylonian captivity and he's allowed them to return to Jerusalem. And now John is declaring that God's bringing about a new type of exodus in which he's going to redeem his people from the captivity that religion has created. The captivity that religion has created. Jesus came to bring about relationship with God. And it wasn't acceptable to the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. They could not, it didn't work with their system. Because relationship says, because of the blood of Jesus, we've already been freed. Now start living like it. We struggle with the same sense of pride that the Jewish leaders felt. I've got a quote for you. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, it's possible to avoid Jesus as Savior as much by keeping all the biblical rules as by breaking them. Sin and evil are self-centeredness and pride that lead to oppression against others. But there are two forms of this. One form is being very bad and breaking all the rules. And the other form is being very good and keeping all the rules and becoming self-righteous. 
There are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. The first is by saying, I'm going to live my life the way I want. And the second is to trust in your own goodness rather than in the goodness of Jesus for your standing with God to attempt to save yourself. In verses 24 through 28, the Pharisees, they are so frustrated at this point that they begin to do what comes natural to religious people. They begin to attempt to control. They say, what authority do you have to baptize? And John's doing something that's most unique. Baptism wasn't unique. If you walked into the temple, we've, uh, through archaeology, we found uh, many places in which there was a baptistry in, in the temple, in the Jewish temple. And so if you had come to be a part of their way of, of worshiping Yahweh God, you would, and you were a Gentile or an outsider, you would baptizo yourself. It was not a religious word. We found that word, um, the earliest documents in which we found that word in archaeology is actually in a pickle recipe in which it says to baptizo the, pickle, the cucumbers. So you dip them. That's what it means. It's not a religious word. It just means to dip. And Jews or those who had come to know uh, the way of following Yahweh would put on a white robe and they would step down just like this into a baptistry. And they would step down and they would baptizo themselves. They would, they would completely wet themselves with water, showing that they have been cleansed. And so then they would walk out. Now John's doing something really different. John's actually dunking people. And I got the feeling John was like, I don't think he was doing it like we do it. I don't know. This is just me. But just knowing what I know about John, I got the feeling John was just like wearing people out. He was dunking them. And they go, what, what authority do you have to baptize? And John is baptizing in order to prepare the way for Jesus. They're asking, where do you get this authority from? And John says, let me tell you a little bit about who I am. And this is what's really amazing. Look at what John says in verses 24 through 28. He talks about Jesus. And I'm going to fly through this because we're running short on time and there's so much information here. But John essentially says, like, hey, he's older than me. And it's like, how is... How is he older than you? Because you were born before him. And John goes, oh yeah, he's creator. So that makes him just a little bit older than me. And then John goes on. And look at what he says in 27 and 28. Even he who comes after me, the strap of his sandal, I'm not worthy to untie. Think about what John is saying in this moment. So if you're a disciple, if you're a follower of someone then your teacher, you would be their servant. You're their disciple, their Talmudim. Um, and you would walk in the dust of your rabbi. The goal would be that you would be covered in his dust. You would be that close to your rabbi. But in this, we see something unique taking place. Because John says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. Think about that for a second. What would the roads leading up to Jerusalem be like? You're walking along this dusty road. You're walking along a road that has animals that are caravanning on this road with you. I remember playing, you ever play outside? You ever play barefoot? Yeah, I remember my brother one day, we were playing football. He was barefoot. He found it. You know what I'm talking about that he found in the yard. I mean, that's, what, that's what's taking place on their sandals here. They're stepping in all kinds of stuff. Now, even the disciples were not required or even asked to loosen 
their teacher's sandals and wash their feet. That wasn't the place of a disciple. That was the place of a servant. That was the place of a slave. John is saying, I don't even have the rights to be a slave to this man. That's how incredible he is. John knew his place. John had no sense of entitlement or expectation of a reward. When you think about the acclaim, the prestige, the value, the worth, and honor, all pointing to Jesus. None pointing to John. Now think about that for a minute. And, and think about this. John's answer sits really well with us doctrinally. Like if we're followers of Jesus, doctrinally, that sits really well with us. Yeah, we're called to be servants. Yeah, I want to be second. But socially, it does not sit well. Socially, it's very hard. Socially, it means, culturally, it means losing. If you follow Jesus in this life, you will lose in the eyes of the world. Like what? Like all kinds of stuff. All kinds of stuff. Because you're going to follow the Spirit. And the Spirit's going to call you to do some crazy stuff. Just like he called John. And for some of us, it'll be like Paul. Where the prophet went to Paul and, and he said, Come and see all the struggles and all the sacrifice that God has planned for you. And Paul was able to find joy in that because he knew Jesus. John knew what it was like to be second. He knew what it was like to be humble. He knew what it was like to point others to Jesus and be a servant. You say, how do you do that? How do you live that kind of life? I just want to end with this. He was spirit-empowered. That's how you do it. Humble followers of Christ are spirit-empowered. Look at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Think about this passage for a minute of all the titles that John the Baptist could have used. Why this one? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who's John referring to? The Lamb of God. Instantly we get a Passover. Instantly we think about that night in Egypt when the people of Israel for 400 years that they had been in slavery and that Moses had gone in order to rescue the people of Israel and he'd gone to Pharaoh and God had given Pharaoh nine different chances and he had sent nine different plagues. He turned water to blood and he had sent frogs and lice and flies and livestock pestilence and boils on their skin and Hail had destroyed their crops, and then locusts, and then darkness. And finally, 
the killing of the firstborn son. And on that night, God had given instruction to the people of Israel that they would take the perfect lamb without blemish and that they would kill it in the place of their firstborn son. And that they would take that blood and they would wipe it on the doorpost. And as the death angel came throughout the land, that their houses would be passed over. That judgment would have come to the lamb. And that judgment would not come to their firstborn son. Jesus is the fulfillment of that Passover. He is the Passover lamb who takes away the sin of the world question we have to ask ourselves is, will his death cover us? Will we believe? Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover. And in verse 30, John is pointing to Jesus as creator. He's saying, hey, Jesus is older than me because he's been around before I ever existed. And then in verse 31, John isn't saying that he didn't know his cousin Instead, he's pointing to the conclusion that he comes to in seeing the Holy Spirit come to rest upon Jesus at his baptism. So Jesus' baptism launches him into ministry. Even John, his own cousin, wasn't certain that Jesus was the Messiah, it would seem, until that moment. And Jesus' baptism launches him into ministry as the Father declares, This is my Son, whom I love. In Him, I am well pleased. And because the Father was pleased with Jesus, we can know that the Father is pleased with each of us who trust in Jesus as our Savior. We can also know that the Father has launched us into ministry. That our baptism is a reminder of that. See, John's baptism, it wasn't the same as the baptism that we see at the time of Pentecost, right? What was John's baptism? What was he baptizing people into? He was baptizing them for the sake of repentance in order to prepare them for the Messiah who was to come. He explains that. But he goes on and he says, there's one who is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And he's speaking of Jesus. And at the time in which we as followers of Jesus are baptized, our baptism is a reminder that Jesus has sent us out as a witness in order to point other people back to Him. And God has given us His Spirit, the very presence of Jesus, to equip us for ministry and to empower us to make Jesus famous. But in order for us to do that, we have to know our place. Which involves being humble. Humility, some people have said that humility means that uh, you don't think as much of yourself, but it means that you think of yourself less. That's one idea. People who are humble know their place. You can be president of the United States and you can be humble. Current president not included. Are you humble? Be careful how you answer that. Life is it all about you? Do you point others to Jesus? Because in our lives, our lives are either about ourselves or they're about Jesus. There's really no in between. As you think about yourself, what's your life about? 
One of the ways in which we struggle with pride, and we all struggle with pride, one of the ways in which we struggle with pride is vanity. I love the way John Ortberg describes pride. He says, if you've ever been to an exercise class and you've worn spandex, you probably struggle with pride and with vanity. You can laugh as a joke. We all struggle with pride. Let, let me remind you how you struggle with pride and vanity. Uh, and vanity is just a little aspect of pride. When somebody says, hey, which group shot do you like best? What do you do? You find yourself and you say, oh, I think, I think we all look best in this one. Really meaning, I look great in this one. I could care less what everybody else looks like. Right? We struggle with pride. John, who wrote this book, struggled with pride. He spent three and a half years with Jesus. And at one of the most tedious points of Jesus' ministry, as Jesus unfolded the Passover and all his life had meant in the upper room, and he said, I am the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And as he said, this is my body broken for you, John, who wrote this book, he flipped right after that moment and said, hey, could James and I, you know, my brother, could we, could we hang out with you on your left and your right? Could we be the greatest in the kingdom of God? And Jesus said that the greatest in the kingdom of God would be those who serve. John the Baptist came as a servant. Now listen to this. In Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest man who ever lived. Greatest man born of woman. So he's saying outside of himself, John the Baptist, greatest man who ever lived. He goes on and he says something really interesting. He goes on and he says that those who follow in his kingdom will be even greater than John. How? Because we're not pointing people to a kingdom that is to come. We're pointing people and we're saying, look at Jesus. His kingdom has come. And he desires for his will to be done in your life. If you want to be great, be a servant. You say, how do you do that? You abide in Jesus. You abide in Jesus. You say, man, I, I want to be a servant. How can I be a servant? I realize that life is way too much about me. What do I do about that? Do I try harder? No, you repent. Same message that John the Baptist brought. You repent. And you look to Jesus. And you realize, Jesus, I need you. I need you for life. I need you for hope. I need you for peace. Because left alone on our own, we will all miss the boat. But with Jesus, in this upside-down kingdom that he's called us to, you know what I mean? Where the first is last and the last is first. Where Jesus calls us to be servants. If we're willing to humble ourselves and say, Jesus, I need you, then Jesus will show us what it looks like to have life and what it looks like to know him and be empowered by his spirit and to point others to him. Let's pray together. Father, would you forgive us for being full of ourselves? Father, would you forgive us for believing that we know all? Would you forgive us for pretending at times that we are God and that you are not? God, would you give us, through your Spirit, 
the power, God, to be servants. God, to be able to say, I am second. God, to look at you and say, I'm not even worthy to be called your slave. But God, through the power of your spirit, to be able to follow after you and to point others to you. God, thanks for John's example. But God, thank you so much more for Jesus, because even John doubted. Jesus, thank you that you are the Passover lamb, that you're the one who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, thank you that you have cleansed us of our sins. God, that you've made us right and that you've made us holy. And God, that we can follow after you as your humble servants, not because of what we do, but because of what you have done. Jesus, thank you for being our Passover lamb. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me invite those who are serving communion to come forward. And today, uh, as you come forward and as you, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to take the bread. And as you tear it and dip it in the juice, you're reminded that Jesus said, I am the Passover lamb. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that Jesus shows us that his presence is with us. He says, remember me. Do this. For I am with you. Come and worship. His table is open.